Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 53, Westworld Season 2, episode 4. We're back with Mr. Babcock here. Hello, Mr. Babcock. Hello, Mr. Schmidt. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm glad to have you on the phone here and uh, back a little bit earlier. Yeah, yeah, it's good to have you. It's good to have you. We were already texting about this show um, last night, and uh, we both got a chance to teach today and get our minds fired up and ready. And, uh, you know, this is like the nice uh, happy hour conversation we get to have. Um, We get to share Yeah, I would say this is sort of like taking in manna for the Jews outside of um, Egypt when they were in um, <laughs> in desert. Uh, this is this is not our physical food, but rather, as they say in the Lord's Prayer, our, our epiusian food, our super substantial food, that well, which makes life worth living. Right, man must live on more than bread alone, right? Right, right, and, and in fact, well, let's uh, let's dive right in here. So the the first, as we enter Westworld um, episode four. We're, we're treated to a place with several symbols of infinity, like the time, the hourglass, which is also a, ten, a symbol of finitude, right? Because it can be turned over and over and over and over again. And so it shows that uh, something about time is temporary, which the word temporary even comes from the word tampus for time. But there's something eternal about the rotation of it, um, about the structure, the nature of it. And so who do we find in this um, mostly white, sort of cell-like, hospital-like but also cozy home, but James Delos, Jim Delos, the founder of the Delos Corporation, um, who's, who it turns out has been attempting to um, model himself so that he can be effectively immortal. And, um, and so that a body can be built with that his consciousness is then integrated into that enables him to live forever. Um, and that seems to be his, um, his motivation for for um, investing in Westworld in the first place. So we see that the investors do have a different motivation than entertainment for Westworld. And so that's a great question answered. But um, I wanted to mention the, the Beatles, <clears throat> the, the Beatles song that's on there in the beginning. Don't mess with me because when you, because when you do, you're playing with fire. I think it's Rolling Stones. Rolling, Rolling Stones, Stones. excuse me. Is it? Yeah. I, yeah, well, there's my there's my knowledge. I have to listen to a podcast about music. But yeah, that, <laughs> that sounds right. Um, but the notion there, uh, what is it that's being played with that is fire? And well, uh, the unions, the unions mention from the Gospel of Thomas, I believe, an apocryphal work on uh, Christianity, that um, there's this famous quote, which is, "He who is near to me is near to the fire," and that's God speaking there. And so. What I'd like to suggest is that fire here, like for Dante in uh, uh, the Inferno, referring to Ulysses in his capacity to speak, is um, that fire, like light imagery, fire means consciousness. And I would argue, actually, that what uh, God is in Dante's conception, as well as in this Westworld conception, is consciousness as well. And I, w- I would suggest that the reason for that is the reason Ford dies, the same reason that God rests on the seventh day, which is Ford dies so that Dolores, his own creation can have free will and make a choice without him there to guide her. And I would say that that is the exact same um, as God resting on the seventh day, which becomes known as the sun's day. And in fact, in Milton, the first son is Lucifer. He's an image of perfection, but then a better one comes up and that's the sun. And then an even better one is made. um, And that's, that's mankind. Um, which the son will embody himself in, in the form of Jesus. And well, I suggest that the, the seventh day, 
God rests for the same reason that Ford dies and that that enables man to use the power of God or consciousness in order to do the work of God in cultivating the world. And so to tie that back to the very beginning, the idea seems to be he who is close to consciousness or is attempting to gain consciousness is close to the fire. This, uh, this man is attempting to do something like God. But what I would say makes it like God rather than godly is that unlike Ford giving up his life, sacrificing himself in a Jesus-like way in order to bring his creations to consciousness, this man in a more Luciferian way wants to simply himself remain conscious or alive without realizing the true meaning of life for all eternity. He wants the pride of place. He wants to continue to exist. He is unwilling to make the ultimate sacrifice or, or really any sacrifice. Yeah, and in that way, he's almost the opposite of what the hosts are. Yes, yes. And I would say that's precisely what he fails to realize. Yes, whereas the hosts in, in their finitude realize because of their finitude and their former slavery, the, the sort of beauty and richness of life, what he does is he forgets what the true beauty of life is, which is the fact that it is finite and one has the opportunity to become uh, conscious during it of, of the meaning of one's own existence. And so even the fact that he wants to continue on to exist um, after he dies, and he, there are 149 attempts and apparently capable of accepting the reality there, which is very interesting, suggesting that time travel or something like that in a conceptual way could not work because our minds would reject the reality because our minds are part of the reality in which we are embedded mm -hmm. as if they have a time stamp on them, um, which is a very interesting idea. But by the 149th attempt, William, who comes in, is now an old man. He's now played by the older actor, Ed Harris. And, um, well, his uh, James Delos's daughter has died. His son has died. The world is totally different. It's as if there is no longer a place in the world for him, even if he were to be made immortal. And I think that's one of the fundamental points that we're getting here from Westworld. And there's a point made in the Iliad, too, just as the generation of leaves are, so the generations of man, that um, basically what we do as conscious creatures is choose to embody particular roles in the world. And we do that in both an individual and in a typical way. Like, for instance, we're both teachers, but we all we both have our own flair, but we stick to similar sort of curricula and teach like English, right? Mm -hmm. um, even though I teach very few English works. Um, <clears throat> but what James Delo seems to fail to realize is that he gets a moment in time in order to embody in the best way possible um, sort of the king, right? Yeah. Uh, because he's a corporate tycoon. Um, but <clears throat> there would be no... There would be no room for growth and improvement within the world if, in an autocratic way, a single ruler with a single style of being and way of ruling became the ultimate ruler. In fact, what I think is supposed to fulfill that function is the fact that we keep a traditional body of wisdom and we continue to produce new conscious individuals who can then newly represent. Yeah. yeah, incorporate, I think is exactly right incorporate what it is that they're actually or incorporate the role which they wish to embody in the world and that the fact that we can learn and be conscious enables us to continue to do this as a species as we continue to move forward not the fact that we're immortal in fact 
I would argue that if we were immortal, there would be no reason for us to have developed consciousness because consciousness is essentially that which enables us to adapt to a situation in order not to die. Right. So, well, I, so yeah. I have a couple of questions about this, but your, your preamble, which is, which is excellent. Sure. Uh, laid out one is, well, thank you. um, uh, are you, so just the, immediately on the one, the comment you just made, are you suggesting that the gods then are not conscious in, 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 uh, for Homer or for Virgil or something like this? I would suggest that the gods are contents of consciousness. Um, and, Ant- and that, I'm sorry, you said antes of consciousness? C- contents mm. of consciousness. Okay. That they represent different facets of consciousness. So that, like Aries is like anger. Mm-hmm. Aphrodite is like lust. But because Zeus they like, cannot be dynamic, they're not anything other than what they are. Therefore, they're not fully conscious in the way that right. you and I are. Well, they cannot exist except for in the by being embodied by humans. Right. So they share their sort of existence the same way that an ideal shares existence because an ideal without an embodiment is nothing just as a person without an ideal is effectively nothing as well. Right. It, yeah. It's sort of interesting that there is a shaping influence. There's a direct formative influence that an ideal has on a person and a person has an, on an ideal. And I'd say that Dante actually suggests that when in his sphere of Jupiter, when he has the leaders form the shape of an eagle suggesting that uh the the type that you embody in the world or the role that you embody uh forms you but that you also have an individual in, influence on shaping its uh structure in time and yeah i consider that very much beautiful and i would say that's what jim delos does not recognize that's like that the uh had- the jesuit idea of cura personalis and cura institutionalis yeah. Well, that's uh, that's very good. And in fact, Marquette, where I went, Cure Personalis, uh, Cultivation of the Self, or the Personality is where uh, that was our motto, yeah, which I, is great. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm sorry, I interrupted yeah. you. Go ahead on Jim Delos. Uh, very good. Um, and I would say that's precisely what James Delos doesn't realize, that he becomes immortal by joining the immortal ch- chain of great leaders who have innovated in the world. And that he is like a square on a patchwork quirk quilt in that way but what he wants to do is to just be the quilt itself that said the dynamism of his personality and its individuality will show through better by him being a patch in a giant quilt rather than the quilt itself yeah mm-hmm. there's the major difference between a luciferian urge and a godlike urge right yeah a godlike urge is communitarian it is something shared the logos the language the shared language and beliefs and function and purpose between those people down on earth, which then empowers them to do greater things. And as a pre-Christian example, something like the pyramids or, um, or accomplishing any great uh, feat amongst others. Whereas the Luciferian urge is an isolating urge, a proud urge, a desire to be so different that one is the only thing on like earth. And, and, yeah, right. and, and in fact, in Dante's Inferno at the bottom circle of hell, like we were talking about right before we got on air, Lucifer is trapped in ice by his own impotent crying and wing beating. And it's entirely unclear that his crying is because he is contrite or sad. He is very much possibly just angry and upset at everything. And so in trying to be the sort of one God or the universe itself, he completely isolates himself. And so where do we find James Delos? Not dead, but yes, exactly. Completely isolated in this, white room that is supposed to look like heaven but is in fact a major prison yeah. in which he is and it's, um, it's circular right 
and he, you know, I was just thinking now he's, he's riding a bicycle, a stationary bicycle, right? So it goes yes. nowhere much like Perfect. Lucifer stuck in the ice. Yeah. Yes. That's great. And, and he keeps getting, it's, it's like his current existence is the ultimate hell of altered carbon because altered carbon as a Netflix series, their vision of hell is that you can be put into a virtual world where you can have to relive over and over the worst experience of your life, feel that terrible emotion over and over again, and um, and then be killed in all sorts of terrible ways, and then brought back into this virtual world with no memory of that happening. James Delos, his avatar exactly actually that, yeah. burned mm-hmm. to the ground, uh, uh, purified as it were, each time, and then he gets brought back not knowing. He has no idea what's going on around him. He's totally solipsistic and isolated, and it is very much as if he is caught in some sort of purgatory-like hell. Um, I only say purgatory because he's, like, stuck in a limbic, or limbo yeah, in hell. That's a better, yeah, 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 that's a better way. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so one thing I was going to, another, so the other question I had was, uh, I have a few more, but one was, um, Okay, we, we, um, you said something like the reason why he cannot succeed in this endeavor is because he, we only live temporally. Like we only get to live in this circle, and that's how we build consciousness. Being conscious is being aware of this current stasis that we are in, not stasis, but uh, this current yes. existence we're in. And the hosts have a, have a, like I said before, they have like an inverse situation in which they are constantly living the same existence and that existence is full of suffering. But when they reach consciousness is when they break free of that circle. It's like they, they are trained within that circle and then the consciousness is born upon them or is thrust upon them when they can break free from that circle. That's exactly right. I, I think you just made the perfect connection there. The state that the pre-conscious hosts existed in, the cyclical state of living the same day over and over again with minor uh, revisions and uh, derivations, is exactly the state that James Delos now finds himself in, no longer subject to temporal constraint. Now that he's effectively immortal, like one of the gods from the Iliad, like you were saying, he plays out the same narrative over and over. He's actually found himself less free than he was alive. He has placed himself in a sort of unconscious hell. And so I, I think your contrast and comparison with the host there is a, a perfect one, that he he has effectively become less conscious and becoming more immortal. Um, and, and, and that accords very well because um, the man in black in his la- final interaction with, um, with James Delos is now old and he's learned many lessons from life and in fact had his wife commit suicide by this point. And he makes the remark that some men just deserve to die or some men just ought to die. And I think that the world is better off without men, without certain men. Yeah. Yes. And I think he could just as well say that the world is better off without all men at some point and at any particular point, because what he seems to be learning and what seems to be leading to his growth of character, he's experiencing some buildings Roman, I would say, because he attempts to guide a young man who happens to be a host who ends up going wayward. Um, And he also does a good deed that somehow Robert Ford sees through the young lady who talked to him in the first season and told him the maze was not for him, which makes me wonder where is Robert Ford's consciousness? If something can still see a present event through a host and then comment on that present event to William, obviously that is not a recording because the existence of that comment was contingent upon 
the choice that William made in that moment. Well, Unless, okay, now um, that that sort of that uh, it, th- those feel kind of like messages in bottles. Like if he can, you know, it's kind of like a video game. It's like if you can reach a certain status, then you'll get to receive that message, the the wisdom. Yeah, yeah, and I, I agree that it does have that feel, but the specificity of this particular message was contingent upon something that only happened because of a free choice that Dolores made after Robert Ford was dead, which was the decimation right. of, yeah. the, but, of the... But if he's the ultimate writer, if he's God, then isn't he writing this? You know, isn't he able to see... I don't know. Well, see, precisely. If he actually pulled a God and is now the consciousness that exists within each of the conscious hosts, then perhaps he can still embody them yeah. insofar as they become conscious yeah, of this yeah, or that. Yeah, yeah. But I see what you're saying. That moment itself, that good deed that he did, um, there was no guarantee that he would do that deed. There was no necessity that he would do that deed before he, um, he actually did it. And it's good to hear, uh, what is the dog's name again? Lucy? Oh, Lucy. Yeah, sorry, here. Let me go. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I sometimes become uh, numb to her uh, barking. Hold on, I'll quiet her. Time. Okay, we should be all set. Sorry about that. It's okay. And um, so, 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 we are, so, it, it seems as if, I, I do agree that those sound like message in the bottle, sort of canned messages that are sent to um, 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 William, and in the past they had, but the pa- fact that she could perceive this act, judge it as a good act in a sort of divine way, and then tell him that he is still an unrepentant sinner because one good deed does not uh, wipe away a lifetime of how he was acting, which does disagree with uh, Dante's reading of how uh, uh, be- becoming saved or salvation works. But pr- you could also, I suppose, make the argument that even though he has done one good deed, he is not yet repentant because he does not yet understand the function of the larger game, which is what he's, he's told. And I would say that I think what the function of Westworld itself is, is the function of what all stories is supposed to be, is to, for you to join fantasy to reality, for you to embody your ideals. And so for, for Ed Harris's character, the man in Black William, to realize that the point of Westworld is to help you to realize the meaning of your existence within the world, not to be an escape from existence. It's supposed to improve how you act in the world. And I think that's why his daughter, who was the girl who got attacked or the woman who got attacked by the tiger, right. In the previous episode, I think that's why she's been integrated into the narrative because she has come to Westworld in order to make reality and reality, or reality and um, fantasy join for Ed Harris so that he can finally embody in the real world, in a real relationship, the lessons that he learned from Westworld. And he can become the hero that he is meant to be, the white hat he was always meant to be, regardless of his failures, for his very much real daughter, who is, like Dolores, a symbol of the future. Yeah. Now, okay, so comments on her. She comes in uh you know as we were talking about last night via text she comes in after the the jim delos lucifer has been burned for the final time right so so if the man in black is on a quest is a dante then he is um uh then he is sorry lucy's barking distracting me then he is uh now emerging out of the inferno 
and beginning to ascend Mount Purgatory, and he has a new guide in his daughter, right? She becomes the, I mean, I know Beatrice doesn't come in until the top of Mount Purgatory, but this feels like a transition moment for him. I mean, the baptism by fire, the baptism by rain, of water, etc. With the idea of, um, with the old, with the old wise king or the old tyrannical blind king, literally blind in that he's isolated, uh, but actually figuratively uh, in that case, funny. Um, in him dying, that former image of the divine, an image of the future, a young image of the future can now be born mm -hmm. that can manifest itself in the world in a different way. And I would say that there is a strong connection between both uh, the relationship between Dante and Beatrice and Odysseus and um, Athena there. Um, <clears throat> it's hard. I'm sorry. It's hard to focus with Lucille. I know. I'm sorry. Uh, she, she's, she's my brother just came home. So she's uh, she was barking at him. She'll, she'll stop now. All right, good. Well, let's make sure we get this good stuff here and we can keep our thinking. Um, all right, and so the daughter connecting back to um, the man in black is like connecting his actual past to the real future. Um, and so in meeting his actual daughter, who as a daughter is a symbol of the next generation and there for the future in, um, in Westworld, which is itself... A, a place where people come to understand the meaning of their existences, though through fantasy they come to know this. Um, there is a melding of both past and present um, and also a fantasy and reality. She is a connecting force to the meaning of uh, the man in black's life. Part of the greater game will be understanding her place at, of meaning in his existence and that what is truly important to his life will be, I think, less his work for Delos and even his charity work and more the relationship that he develops with her, understanding that because of the finitude of existence, the greatest meaning comes from the relationships that we have with other conscious beings. We're very much conscious of our flaws just as we are of theirs, but this shared consciousness enables us to have maximal adaptation to our situations because we realize how necessary the people around us actually are and how helpful and also how limited and weak and, and malicious and, and dumb. <laughs> and that helps us to understand ourselves better because that's, that's also us. Yeah. Uh -huh. Now, when he but, says to uh, the Colonel that he blows up, uh, you know, I, you, you don't know death. I am death, right? You, you, he calls him, he embodies death. How does that fit into so that schema? You didn't even recognize death sitting across yeah. from you. Well, basically he sits there sort of like the grim reaper offering this man a, a choice. Yeah. And he's called uh, the man in black, obviously. Right. So he, he, he sort of occupies that imagery. Right. And they have this sort of like a uh, mental chess match where he says, and I really loved that he said, uh, the place you're going has many names, and you've told these men you know where you're going, but you don't. Right. He says, uh, the, you call it glory, but it has many names. And I love that as an idea of heaven. It does have many names. Yeah. Heaven, paradise, the white isle, um, any place that is an ideal that draws you into a better existence, therefore embodies itself through your actions in the world and thus manifests itself in the world through your conscious acceptance of that which it takes to improve the world around you, which is often suffering on your part, um, in order to mitigate the suffering of others, which is a beautiful notion. But um, so he says, 
Um, you know where you're going or you know where you want to go. I know the way there, which struck me as him accepting his role now as a guide, mm-hmm. like a psychopomp or a, a figure that brings people to greater consciousness. And so the problem that the colonel ran into, and I didn't know that was his rank. That's pretty high rank for him. I think that's what he, I'm pretty sure that's what he was a colonel. I think he was a colonel. Yeah, he was at least an officer, uh, I, and I don't remember of which rank Colonel would be pretty cool, but um, I'm not sure if it was that or if it were Captain. And, um, well, if he can show the way to another individual of how to get to the ideal place, he is a figure of the divine in that he has been to the ideal place and can therefore guide because he is still living, because how a human would how a human would be able to show you the ideal places by how they had lived and embodied that uh, heroic or individual or divine lifestyle and then died. Um, their story would be set so that you can then um, embody it through their example. Whereas the man in black offers actually to guide himself, not as an example, but as an actual guide, which, um, well, that makes him far less like a, a, the sort of Christian God, but more, more I would say, or excuse me, the God, the Father. I mean, it is very much like Jesus yeah. that he says that sort of thing. It yeah. is also very much like the kingdom the, of heaven is at hand, right? I mean, yeah, that's the same kind of language that Jesus uses. Yeah. Right. And also he carries the ideal with him constantly saying that he serves the Father as he is alive and embodied. Yeah. Um, and but it's also like um, Mercury or Hermes who helps to guide both Aeneas and the Aeneid and Odysseus uh, to the development of ingenious things necessary, giving them the idea of the right thing to do in the right moment, uh, eat the mole to keep from turning into a pig for Odysseus and get out of Carthage when Dido is about to kill all of his men for Aeneas. Um, and so that helpful divine figure who can guide you towards your goal is sort of what he is embodying himself. And something interesting about um, both Jesus and uh, Hermes is that Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. And also what um, Hermes does is as psychopomp, he can make those who are asleep awake and awake asleep and also dead alive and alive dead. So he can make zombies uh, uh, essentially. But if we take them both as spirits of consciousness to reject them and that which they um, send your way, you might say, is to embody death because you do not become more conscious due to the information that is latent within the situation in front of you. Whereas if you see them for what they are or the message for what it is or the current situation at hand for the information rich within it, boom, you become more conscious in that your awareness increases and you make connections to that which is actually present in a way that you couldn't have done if you did not become conscious. So I would say that he embodies death and that what he visits upon the the colonel or the captain or whatever he's he a major, is, I just looked it up. He's a major, good. Major sounds major, like major cratic. Major cratic. What he visits upon him is a reflection of that which he visits on himself. He refuses to break his own pattern and to become more highly conscious and pursue uh, and pursue actual glory and is okay just being a devil like one of the uh, 
uh, Malabronque and Dante's Inferno just playing around and torturing poor servants, which Ed Harris's character, the man in black says is a waste of time. Yeah, which is true because they're just like on Pinocchio's, um, what is it? Fun Island where yeah, the boys turn uh-huh. into asses. Yeah. Like they are essentially brain asses. They're, they're purposeless, purposelessly um, hurt, hurting and enjoying the suffering of others. It's very similar to the show Vikings I've been watching uh, recently. They consider it good sports to just mess around with those they've, they've caught. Um, and so what Ed Harris in being deaf to that major Craddock there is that he's simply reflecting that which major Craddock is offering to him. So he could have been life. Yeah. He could have been glory. Uh, th- that's kind of what I was thinking is that he is the alpha and the omega for major Craddock, right? Like he is death and he is life. He is both uh, embodied. He says, I can lead you to glory, but I will also lead you to death. I am, I am both of these things embodied in one person for you because for another way of thinking about it is, yeah, is for the hosts, the humans are, are a new level of consciousness that they have not yet achieved. And so therefore I am, like the way to glory is me and the, it's also the way to death. Like you need to die in order to achieve this. And you know, something interesting about that is if we continue the line of thought that God is consciousness and rests himself so that his creations can have free will and live as they please, choosing between good and evil, and that that's actually the superiority between uh, of humans above angels, but not higher in intellect or will or in longevity, we have access to freedom of choice in a way that the angels do not. Um, and a temporality that gives us a meaning of existence. They do not because of the existence of suffering. And also the fact that in the Christian mythology, uh, God actually comes down to suffer being a human. That never He never does that as an angel. Though I guess you could suggest that the initial state of being of God was more similar to an angel, which would be interesting. But if consciousness is the divine, then you see what is supposed to be leading it leads in the man in black and thus can lead those around him who are not as conscious. Mm-hmm. It leads in Maeve. It leads in Dolores. It is the leading thought that they have that guides them towards that which they are aiming at. It's, and so it's the voice inside uh, there of them, is right? the voice they choose to listen to. Yeah, that's right. And the voice is their voice, right? Yeah. Not anybody else's voice. They're not following a rule or a preset path or a program that anybody else has. They're not simply doing that which the type which they are would do. They are individually acting in a dynamic way in order to be themselves, and that will happen to fulfill uh, sort of the ultimate role, I would say, right, of conscious individual who chooses to suffer that which is necessary to embody whatever ideal or to accomplish whatever goal uh, he or she sets out to um, willingly. And um, so... So even though he calls himself death there, I would say he's sort of a reflection of the lack of consciousness of Major Braddett, but can be that sort of a reflection because he is now conscious himself, leading himself towards his own goal. Though I would put a caveat on that. I don't know that he is quite at the level of consciousness. I think he needs to reach a level of consciousness that enables him to understand the suffering that he has caused, perhaps his daughter, or he needs to suffer, I think needs to happen because he is still playing the game that Robert Ford has set out for him. And I think also part of playing the greater game that Robert Ford mentions through the young girl in this episode is he needs to not be playing anybody else's games made for him, but rather Wait, the great game, game of you. Yeah, right. Yes, his own game. His own game in reality. That's right. 
he like uh, uh, Jean Piaget's uh, master game player needs to be capable of producing his own game with his own rules uh, in the same way that Robert Ford and Arnold did that, right? Yeah. Uh, now, even though it's sort of a fantasy simulacra, they produced it in the world. They produced their own game with their own rules. And it turns out that their game is so good that it seems to follow the same rules as reality. Yeah. Um, reminds he, me a lot of Borges's um, oh, the library, library of Babel, where right? Yeah. Create, yeah, where they create the map that's so perfect that it can be set on top of the actual thing which it ten, attempts to map. And I would say that's what our mind tries to do. All right, sorry. I, 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 no, 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 it's fine. I was, I was thinking about that, actually, that example in our first episode when we were talking about the map and how they're looking at it. And it's like a mind. And it's like, like you said from last <laughs> night, it's, the world inside your head, which is like the, the model of consciousness. Um, yes, yes, and I actually found some evidence for that. Not only are the brains that they, they seem to be creating, the consciousness holders, these spherical red objects, but the representation of those objects is a sphere too on a tablet. Yeah. And so, yeah. so the representational model models the physical reality, yeah. which is what I would say our minds do. Yeah. And why we get curious and have attention that moves about. We are attempt as information gatherers, like like bees to the flowers. We are constantly attempting to model reality in the best possible way, which is why trauma is one of the worst things we can endure because it puts us in a loop that we can't get out of unless we face something in reality that we 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 cannot face. And so I would say that actually uh, James Delos represents somebody like a trauma victim, okay. right? Yeah. Now, right. That's that's where I wanted to go with Delos uh, and the William interaction is that he. Um, so number one, we've been talking under the assumption that it's Delos who instigates this this cycle, but he seems to think so. At least the cyborg. Well, yeah, but it's part. possible that it's William doing this, right? That it's William exploring that he can't let go. Delos is sort of a father figure for him. Um, I shouldn't say sort of; he is a father figure for him. I do think that's what William has to face at the end when he finally breaks down the project yeah he, i mean ultimately he he's the one it. keeping it going right like it, yeah and he's the one who shuts it yeah. down too so he realizes that he does not need a father and in fact this is like the second father figure who has died for him right yeah. i suppose ford in a way is is a contemporary of his but ford also creates the game in which he plays and so he is certainly a father-like figure and that was and he dies and then now he finally lets other man die um um this delos and so he like aeneas in the aeneid who has several guiding and father figures die um uh, aeneas has palinuris die his steersman and kaisis die his father kaeta die his nurse who was effectively his mother because his mother was a a goddess so she wasn't around um as well as his wife he loses more and more guiding influences and starts becoming uh called father aeneas he becomes his own guide as he becomes more conscious, which Dante then shows mastery of having understood by having Virgil disappear when Dante's will becomes free by the liberal arts uh, or, or by um, the power of his own discernment at the top of the purgatorio. And so what the man in black is now having happen is external guides are leaving him so that the internal guide consciousness can right. finally play the game it is meant to. Right. Yeah, so he, so you said earlier that he needs to suffer in order to attain more consciousness and he's, he's induced suffering on others, but he has suffered. He has had to watch these people around him, these guides that he has looked up to die and perish and his love died, uh, you know, maybe perhaps because of actions of, from him, but that still happened. 
And then he's sitting here watching this person. He has this interaction with this someone uh, who he considers a father and he has to kill him 149 times. Like that has to have an effect to him on him. But the question is, if he doesn't accept it as suffering or if, he, if like, is he, is he perhaps blocking it out of his consciousness and therefore not suffering? And then what he needs to do by saying the way forward is, is not the right way. You need to go back. Uh, that, that uh, Ford is trying to tell him, you need to reflect on what you have done. It's not about suffering in the future. It's about thinking about what right. your actions that, were in the past. That's exactly right. You've made the connection. So the, one of the last things that James Delo says is that uh, a man saw a reflection right. of himself or rather saw that there were two of him, but then he, he realized, realized was a reflection. that was a yeah, right. it was only one. And so that is itself a metaphor very similar to the narcissus right, myth yeah. and where a narcissus looks into the water and then um, sees what he thinks is himself, uh, and which is repeated in John Milton's Paradise Lost by what Eve does. One of her first acts is to look into the water mm-hmm. and then feel the pride and vanity of her own beauty. beauty. And then so something interesting that I teach when I teach, uh, say, the Aeneid ever in an epic, a person, a hero goes to the underworld. That is a return to the collective memory of his people and also his personal memory. And in fact, you go through your personal memory first in order to get to the collective memory, the tradition of your people. And that's true of both uh, um, the, that's actually true of all three of those works. And the Odyssey, does does, um, Odysseus see his mother first and then Achilles and Ajax? Well, actually, even better than that, uh, Odysseus first sees his friend who didn't know who died. Right, yeah, yeah. Right, and it's the same with Aeneas. He sees Palinurus, who just died, which means you have to get through the personal memory in order to get to the um, the collective tradition. You get deeper and deeper down there. And so in understanding the past, and so what happens with Aeneas is that he comes to understand his own past, and that enables him to see the future, the descendants that will come from him. And so in understanding, That it has meaning and that narratives lived out in the real world amongst other conscious humans has ultimate meaning. And I would say that is what that is what the man in black has yet to realize, which is his ultimate task. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. All right. Good. Good. No. Well, I, you know, it's, it's nice. It's nice to uh, it's nice to hear that um uh okay okay so i also want to talk about bernard if we can uh briefly and it's it might just be kind of a coda to this overall conversation because i think you're right the 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 meat of this episode is sort of resolving the man in black's character or at least identifying his central conflict uh and putting a sort of a putting it right on the nose 
but Bern- so Bernard is also modeled after a real person, right? Right. And so I find it interesting that he's the one who is sort of the the crux or the connection to the uh, D- James Delos storyline because he's the one who is apparently directing this, or at least he did at the very end in which he kills the scientists who are the engineers who are working on this, and he steals one of the brains uh, or one of the CPU brain things. Um, but why is Bernard able to function as a model of a real person, whereas James Delos was not? And one suggestion I have is because it's something that you said earlier today, which is that he is perhaps given a new function as a new being and and that like arnold lived and died and that this person is, looks like arnold and has similar similarities to his personality but he has a different function a different ideology a different way of being and therefore he is a different person just like kind of like a twin brother maybe so is that is that what you think or or, or do you think there's something else going on that 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 bernard was able to be copied from arnold that's a tough question. That's a tough question because I would say that uh, much about Bernard is certainly um, modeled off of Arnold, but he does have a defined and distinguished uh, identity and purpose. Uh, for one, he is for sure the subordinate to Robert Ford. Yeah, right. Um, Whereas Arnold not, was not, right? Arnold was the... He was the partner. Yeah, right. And, and uh, so the man in black thought, the real creative genius, though, right. Robert Ford is showing that perhaps that's not as true as the man in black believes. Also, uh, Bernard has a specific set of functions that root him in a different way to the park. Rather than being creator of the park and bringer to consciousness of Dolores and some being, he is simply a custodian yeah. um, of that which has already been created. And so as as similar as he is to um, Arnold in terms of, of, of form, physical form, his function differentiates him enough to where I think that they're entirely unique beings, even if one is based on the other, uh, predominantly because of their differing both accomplishments and goals. Uh, that said, I do think it's very interesting that Bernard continues to struggle with the fact that he has cortical damage, mm-hmm. which requires that he continue to uh, input that good um, cortical fluid mm-hmm. into his mind. Be a vampire, um, yeah. Yeah, sort of like a vampire, and he's now had to enlist a, the he- help of a human who he's now had to go acquire the trust from, who is a, a, a return, one of the techs back from the very first season, which I thought was a, a great element. And in fact, he's learning how to navigate through his memories now and has explicitly been told by the tech, I think her name was Elsie, that um, his memories are not... And so this is very interesting. So like I said that I think humans are stamped with time. Well, the yeah, thing about yeah, Bernard's yeah. memories is that they are not stamped with time, and so he sort of swims in them because his consciousness in not observing the timestamp of each of those memories then becomes lost in each memory as if it is really happening, and he seems to start being able to understand how that happens in order to um, learn what it is in his own personal memory, which is also sort of a collective memory in that he is a, a robot with a systemic memory in which information can be kept like Peter Abernathy. Well, within that memory is the key is one of the keys to what is happening at Delos, which is the fact of the existence of James Delos's attempt at becoming immortal. So he is discovering the nature of what he is 
as a host more and more and using that to his and the other's advantage, thus showing the inner good within his nature um, and specifically showing through his uh, particular struggles too because he could get lost in his memories just like Maeve and Dolores. It seems terrible. And also he is experiencing diminished capacity. Um, And also he has experienced the tremendous shock of not only becoming conscious and realizing he's a host uh, fairly recently, but also everything getting upset and changed and his creator and uh, like mentor Robert Ford dying. Um, so, so I would say that Bernard, I'm not yet sure what's happening with him, but I am sure that he is exploring and that that is a good thing and that he is one of the protagonists, or there can't be multiple protagonists uh, because protos means first, but he is one of the characters who most deeply interests me in his pursuit of learning his meaning in now a much bigger world in which he is a conscious robot that exists. Yeah. Now, I'm like we said at the very outset of this uh, season, I'm not entirely interested in talking about plot, but I'm not sure he's... Uh, so you said it's, it's good or interesting that he is pursuing his consciousness, and I agree with that, but I'm not sure he's... I don't know. I feel like the tone of some of the interactions he had with Elsie were, were a little bit selfish. And, and I'm like, she, you know, they made a very big point of her saying, I have to trust you and I trust you now. And so that to me is like a Chekhov's gun, right? So eventually he's going to have to betray her again. And also at the very, in the very first episode of the season, he said, I killed all the hosts, right? So I'm not sure that he is an entirely benevolent, you know, just because the hosts reach consciousness doesn't necessarily make them all benevolent, right? So, and, and to pursue does not mean that you will stay in that pursuit because yeah, insofar right, right, right. and are willing to endure conscious suffering, you might get warped by something that's beyond right. comprehension. And so he may learn something that is too much for him. He may also be put in a situation where uh, a greater hand is held and he his hand is forced and he has to do that sort of thing. Yeah. But now in a conscious way that will then perhaps uh, partially destroy him because recall – he used to be under the control of Dr. Robert Ford, and he mentions that, but now he says he's under his, his own, own control. control. Yeah. That first episode, given the fact that he wakes up, has no memory of what has happened, and then finds this sea full of dead bodies and admits yeah. that it was him, it is sort of unclear whether he is beyond control yeah. at this point. Well, and, well. And, he, and he directs the drone host to murder all those engineers. You know, obviously, it seems like to cover up what's going on but um also under the control of dr robert ford yeah that was back in the past and yeah well, yeah so, yeah right right and then he took that red um soul mind brain mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, thing, uh uh into into his pocket yeah and so people are wondering about that but you know whatever um and so whatever. uh <laughs> interesting about this is that uh one of our thoughts from earlier has been confirmed uh, the name of this, the name of this, um, this, uh, this episode was Riddle of the Sphinx. Uh-huh. Yeah. The answer to the Riddle of the Sphinx is the same as what's at the, the middle of the labyrinth. The answer is man. Mm-hmm. So maybe the riddle is what goes on four legs in the morning, two in the afternoon, and three in the evening. And Oedipus answers this, this riddle. And actually it leads to his ultimate suffering, him becoming conscious not only of that, but of his utter capacity for suffering as a man because he realizes that in, in, in the end that he has used his own consciousness in order to indemnify 
himself. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is, that is essentially what is going to happen to the man in black. His greater consciousness or the consciousness he is going to uh, develop is going to be used in order to indemnify himself. And thus he, like man, like Oedipus, will endure the ultimate suffering. suffering. And yeah. it's very much like picking up one's cross in the Jesus-like way. Yeah. Um, That'd be interesting if he ends up blinding himself in some way. Uh, because he does, he does, you know, he is murdering his father perpetually by, by burning Delos. Um, his wife suffers and dies because of his actions. She commits suicide, right? So, uh, uh, now granted, she's not his mother, but um, she could be sort of the ur-mother of, of him in a way. So it's... Uh, shortage of classical figures who, because of their blindness, become blind. Oedipus blinds himself because of his blindness to the facts uh, that were apparent, that could have been apparent to him. Uh, Polyphemus, the Cyclops, mm -hmm. who uh, eats the men of Odysseus, dishonoring the Xenia, not understanding that the power of the gods can be em embodied by humans, uh, gets blinded by Odysseus. Phineas, who eats his own children, is blinded mm -hmm. as well. And then you have good examples like Homer and Tiresias, who are themselves prophets, who, though they cannot see simple reality uh, or with their eyes they can see with their third eye they can see they can see the causes of things and that which will happen because they are masters of tradition you might ah. also say that something and so in that way Jesus. ford is a teresius right and he's speaking through the dead uh -huh. yes I, yes he's both like a teresius uh -huh. and like a Jesus. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. in that way right well what's the right, line, right, right. what's the line from um uh it's it's in um, Plato, and it references uh, uh, you know the the scene in the in the Odyssey when when Odysseus is there talking to Teresa, and it's something about like just like he was more real in life, he is more real than the than the shades in the underworld, or something like this. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I can't believe I don't have that direct quote right here, but yes, uh, just as I mean. One thing about the Homeric underworld is that one thing it teaches you is that each of the characters in the underworld lives in the same way that they lived in the upper world. Achilleus is still resentful. Mm -hmm. Agamemnon is still making excuses. Heracles, his shade, even though he's a god, his shade, like Orion, is still hunting. Mm -hmm. And so Tiresias, just as he could see in the world when others could not, can still see in the underworld mm -hmm. and the way people cannot because once you become a memory once you are part of the tradition you are forever represented by the actions you committed and the reputation you now have among the stars or held in the heavens which is the mind of those who continue to exist which connects very well to what the native american says to the hemsworth character the head of security Correct. who says instead of killing him he gives him a fright of his life, like what happened to Dostoevsky when blanks were shot at him when he was a young student, um, when he was lined up on a firing line and told he was going to die, which then gave him uh, uh, seizures for the rest of his life. Uh, and you can only imagine how scary that was. But he says, You're only, you only live as long as the last person who remembers you. Yeah. Which and is, I would say, that, yeah, go on. Oh, I was just going to say, which is, which is sort of the lesson of the James Delos storyline which is that it's better to be like Ford is the positive model of that, whereas Delos is the negative model of that, you know, as the Lucifer figure. I agree with that dichotomy and with the God Lucifer one there. I would also say that I, I perhaps that is true, but I would say true than that is that 
the more you embody an eternal ideal like leadership or, or, or one of the four virtues like temperance, prudence, um, um, yeah, per, yeah, 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 fortitude is courage in oh, that yeah. one. Prudence is wisdom, oh. uh, justice. Oh, yes, right, of course. And, uh, yeah, yeah, so temperance, prudence, uh, justice, and uh, fortitude. Or insofar as one embodies, say, one of those virtues which are eternal, one joins oneself to a chain which is interconnected and eternal, like the idea of the, the patterned uh, blanket. And insofar as one gives more of one's life to embodying one of those eternal ideals, one lives more while one is alive. And thus one's focus is more on living while one is alive when one can make an actual change in contrast to being in uh, the underworld or uh, um, the Odyssey's place where people never change because the pattern of their life has been set and can never change now because they now lack consciousness and time and bodies. And so, and so rather than focusing on being remembered after one is dead or living forever, one should focus on living as richly and vividly as possible while one is alive because one cannot prevent the fact of death the passage of time, but one can embody one can embody an ideal or a principle while alive. And so the game seems to be, well, do that as much as possible while alive, and then you are most vividly alive while living. And that's the best you can do. That's all you can do. And then serve as an example to others to do the same, and thus they get to experience life in the same way as you do, and thus you connect with those throughout all time by experiencing a very similar right. positive existence yeah. or meaningful yeah. existence. In, in that way, the memory of the self is not about the self, but rather of the virtue embodied in the self. That's right. Perfect. Exactly. It's not selfish or personal in that way. It's far more universal. And the idiosyncrasies that you bring help to bring out the pitch of that which you represent even better and to show, you know, the beauty of your soul, I would say. Yeah. Um, uh, sort of like how when we look at differing trees – you're like, man, that's a really beautiful tree. And it's like, but it's slightly different from that other tree. And you're like, well, that's beautiful too, but also the same tree, but they are different. It's like, that's how personalities are supposed to be as well. And that it's not just the content of your opinions and the this or that that you do, but the fact that you embody this, uh, this virtue as vividly as possible. And I would say that's certainly what Dante's Paradiso suggests mm -hmm. is the goal of life. And, and that, I mean, a really cool thing is that what we now know is that humans are so highly imitative, we're actually far more imitative or capable of imitating than chimpanzees, that if you embody an ideal, those around you, like the disciples around Jesus, which I think is the idea of him as an ideal, will start to embody those ideals better too, naturally. And so the purpose of your existence seems to be bring, to bring something immortal, eternal, and good into existence as much as possible and to not get in the way of that happening with your ego and your personal selfish uh, uh, desires, which I would say are generally represented by sins. Those things which besmirch your character and keep that which is eternal from shining through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very good. And so it's not so much that like, sins are bad so much as they just keep you from the integrity necessary to embody an eternal form best. They hold you down in the inferno. It's, yeah, they can just hold you back, yeah. hold you down like bad friends. Yeah. It's not, yeah. So 
their objective badness consists in the fact that they are hindrances. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, so it's, in it's, the modern- it's the example oh, when, when, we, when we talk about the Inferno in school, it's, it's the, you know, the student always questions, well, why are they, why can't they get out of the Inferno, right? They're in the Inferno because they are embody that sin that is holding them back from getting out. It's like a, it's the circular logic and that's why they're in the Inferno. Right, it's the same, well, it's the same thing as the Homeric underworld and the Virgilian underworld. It's not why can't they get out, it's why did they end up there? Right. They ended up there because they started to embody uh, a pattern which kept the, the eternal pattern which they were supposed to represent from manifesting, which means they now exist as negative examples for all time of what happens when you are overcome by a sin or when you let a hindrance get in the way and you fail to embody the archetype necessary. So which is what, actually, which is what Delos is. He, he is a embodiment of, uh, you know, like before, in, the, in this episode, the, the, in the, you know, the preview for uh, the, on the last Westworld, you know, they say, they have this scene of him saying, I don't care about people being able to, I mean, he doesn't say this exactly, it's a paraphrase, but I, essentially he's saying, I don't care about people being able to uh, you know, explore their own consciousnesses or, or figure something out about themselves or have therapy through an experience, but he just cares about making money uh, because he's going to die soon, right? So, right? so that is just pure greed and pride and he has no care about anything eternal. Yeah. And that's what gets manifested in his version Correct. of afterlife, yeah. right? And where completely, like the Midas touch, right? He's completely isolated, and alone he gets everything that his greedy little heart wants but what does he not get that also Midas does not get his daughter yeah connection to another human and what is it that Ed Harris is going to have to achieve human connection yeah to his daughter he's going to stop Florence and perhaps that's also what we see in him saving the wife of Lawrence him starting to understand the human connection through the hosts which would have been the purpose of the host the entire time which to connect to our own reality that would seem to be the point of us watching shows and movies and playing video games not so that we can escape reality but so that we can use those as extensions of our capacity to model reality so that we can play out certain scenarios so that we understand how to act towards each other in the most optimal possible way in order to bring about the most meaningful relationships with each other yeah they're all mirrors as he said in uh, or as William said to Dolores, right? You're not a thing, you're a mirror. And it's not a mirror that's reflecting you as you are. It's reflecting you through, it's a, more like a filtered mirror, right? It's reflecting you. So when he looks at uh, Lawrence's wife, he sees his own wife as she would see him, right? When he looks at Lawrence's daughter, he sees his own daughter as she would see him. So it- Right, just like when Achilleus sees Priam in book 24 of the correct. Iliad, he yeah. sees his own father. And just as when Priam sees Achilleus, he sees, he sees well, he's actually in the presence of his own son, but yeah, he sees his, well, own, his own son's body, but yeah, right. Yeah, right. And so, and so, right, right. He's in the presence of Hector's body that Achilles is there holding. Right. And so he is in the physical presence of his, bro- his son who has been preserved by Apollo. So he has him there to actually look at, right. but it's unclear whether he's, he's covered or not to me. So uh, he, in any case, when they cry together, Priam cries, about Hector and um, Achilles cries about both Patroclus and his father. But what that suggests is that, right, like you said, they, they reflect um, those they love to each other. And they, and so observing this reflection, they see how similar they are to each other and how silly and, pot- and potentially how 
um, meaningless their projections of hate onto each other have been. I would say that's, that, you know, that, that is how any society goes from being enemies to becoming friends by going from uh, seeing that other as the anomalous right. thing that can bring about destruction to one through disease or through deception or through um, carnage to seeing it as to seeing it as potentially uh, information rich um, entity that can then trade with it yeah. uh, and trade such information and thus establish a conscious relationship. And so the, fir the first instinct, like Heraclitus says, is even the dog barks, violence, conflict. But learning how to communicate leads to trade, trade not only of valuable physical goods, but of the far more valuable intellectual goods right. of intelligence, which is actually borne out by the fact that we have like a CIA, which what does it do? Well, it tends to gather intelligence on other countries, uh, often intelligence they don't want to give us, at least from what I know. <laughs> <laughs> and well, I, I don't know. Speaking of uh, intelligence they don't want to give us, I suppose we're going to have to wait on what it is we're getting for the next time. Mm -hmm. You feeling pretty good about this conversation, Mr. Babcock? Oh, yeah, this is great. Yeah. Well, it, it's yeah. easy when the episode is so rich. The material was incredible this week. Uh, I know. I was, Lisa Joy, that's the what, director, that's all, did a great job. Yeah, and I would say that's all always been my argument for, like, uh, the beauty of teaching the great books and why, in some ways, it can be the most difficult thing in the world, and in others, it can be the easiest. Because it's just, like, there's so much. It is each Each great work of art, is a cave of wonders, a treasure trove full of so many things worth more than any gold that you, like you were saying, we're like Scrooge McDuck diving into the <laughs> diving into the pool full of gold and cash. It's yeah. We can just, we, just as we said, to begin this, we can just dive right in. Yeah. Well, I suppose that's a, a great thing about our finitude and imperfections that we can always be working to improve at the very least the amount of information we have and the our capacity to share it with each other which you know just as a reflection to return to re the reflection motif we are here reflecting with each other manifesting our relationship based on a show which has been put out by a human about the relationship between humans and their technology and we're doing this through the new technology of the anchor app uh putting out a podcast which connects you in Michigan to me in California. It's magic. <laughs> it's magic. That's right. That's right. It's alchemy. We're doing alchemy here. All right. Well, Mr. Babcock, this has been a wonderful conversation. This has been episode 53. And, well, we look forward to having you back next week. All right. We'll see you next week. See you next week. All right. Bye-bye.